Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 28, when he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, you son of God, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Remember what we've already learned. Chapters 8 and 9 are devoted to the miracles of Jesus. Jesus cures the sick in chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, and then again in verses 23 and 24, and calms the sea in chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, and confronts the spirit world in verse 16. And now in verses 28 through 34, on the eastern shores of the Galilee, there was a region. In the ancient world, it was called the Decapolis region. Mark calls the region Gadara. Here in Matthew, it's called Gergeza. It's near modern Jerash. And like I said, the incident is recorded in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, it's also recorded in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Some moderns reading the account file this in a folder that they mark fantasy or superstition. Some people believe demons should be grouped in the same category with zombies or mythical creatures or ghosts or vampires or werewolves. But the Bible makes it clear that there are supernatural beings, that there really is an invisible world. The Bible refers to these interdimensional creatures as angels, sometimes demons, some are benevolent, some are malevolent. Both angels and demons are said to be able to interact with human beings. Demons can oppress, possess, and destroy human beings. And the Bible teaches that Jesus has power over dark and wicked forces. You know, some Christians have an unwise and an unhealthy preoccupation with Satan and demons. Others who call themselves Christians but think they know more than the Bible and Jesus 
They deny the invisible world. They deny the supernatural world. They deny these spirit beings. And C.S. Lewis famously wrote in that classic volume, The Screwtape Letters, he wrote, quote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an, un, an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight, unquote. He's exactly right. In the real world in which we live, there are going to be people who under no circumstances in their worldview will allow for what you've just read. But the Bible makes it clear that they're real, they're evil, and they're destructive, but that Jesus also is real and powerful. And so look again, the truth about demon possession at the beginning of verse 28 it says, when he, that's Jesus, had come to the other side, that is, the other side of the Galilee, to the country of the Gergazines, there met him two men possessed by demons. In Matthew's gospel, there are two men that are talked about. In Mark's gospel, the focus is on one of those possessed men. Tragically and unfortunately, the skeptic, or the doubter will say, see, I told you the Bible's filled with errors. Mark says there's one demon-possessed guy. Matthew says there's two demon-possessed guys. Well, again, do the math, skeptic. If there are two people present, but one account only focuses on one, it doesn't mean that they're contradictory. It could very well be that in Mark's gospel, the focus is on the one who is more vocal and the one who will, in fact, publish his testimony about the redemption, the salvation, and the freedom that Jesus brings. In Mark's gospel, the place is called Gadara. It is the nearest large city that's some six miles away. Paul will talk about these creatures, these beings. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he talks about the spirit world. He says, quote, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood in Ephesians 6, 12, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness, of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. He's speaking about the world in which we live, the atmosphere which surrounds our planet. Those are the heavenly places. There's a reason why Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. And when the Bible speaks of demons, it has two reoccurring adjectives. They are evil and unclean. And that's why you'll see them referred to in the Bible as evil and unclean. They speak in verse 29. They know about the identity of Jesus in verse 29. They know about their own future damnation in verse 29. They experience fear in verse 29. So how can we tell the difference between a person who's emotionally distressed, mentally ill, 
or demon-possessed? That's a good question. And throughout the course of this study, we're going to answer that question. And this message and this study is going to prompt a lot of different questions. You're going to wonder about, can Christians be demon-possessed? And I'm going to give you a short and brief answer later on, but I want to encourage you that the focus of this passage isn't in order to answer that question. If you want to know the answer to that question, see James after the service, go to the media room, get my message on Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, where we go into depth answering that question. But for now, let's talk about what the text is talking about. The traits of those who are demon-possessed. Look at the end of verse 28. It says, coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. Where are the demon-possessed? In our passage, we find them in the tombs. Now, again, if in your mind you're reading this passage and you're thinking of a creepy graveyard, you're probably missing the point. Because on the eastern slopes of the Galilee, there's a mountain range that will go up and it, is, it contains limestone cliffs. And in the ancient world, the, the ancient people would bury their dead in these, in these limestone cliffs. And so, again, think of caves, dark caves that contain ossuaries and graveyards. And it says in the tombs they are exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. The very first thing that I want to draw your attention to is something that you might overlook. And that is that Jesus will go where others fear to go. Note in the text itself, so that no one could pass that way. In the ancient world, people steered clear of the demon-possessed. Now, I'm hoping that that doesn't shock some of you. I'm hoping you're going, well, demon-possessed people are kind of creepy. They're kind of frightening. They're kind of difficult to deal with. And you would be right. And the point becomes Jesus is willing to go where others fear to go to save those who are untouchable and unapproachable and unreachable. You see, the Lord wants all people to be saved. Yes, even mean people, even violent people, even scary people, even possessed people. And you might be thinking, yes, that's all well and good for Jesus. Jesus can deal with the mean people, the violent people, the scary people, the possessed people. That isn't who I am, and that's not who I want to be. But guess what? It could very well be that Jesus might allow someone mean and scary and violent and difficult in your life. I want you to look at the text again. Look at that word carefully exceedingly fierce. It's the Greek word chalepos. It can mean violent, and that's the way it's translated in the NIV, coming out of the tombs, violent. It can mean terrible. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, when Paul is speaking to Timothy about what the world is going to look like when we come to the end of the age in the not-too-distant future, he says, 
perilous times will come. Same word. Chalepos. Perilous. And so in Mark's gospel, we read in chapter 5, verse 3, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains. In chapter 5, of verse 4 of Mark's gospel, it says, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him, it says. He was violent with supernatural strength. And so what does society offer for mean people and violent people and scary people and possessed people. And we live in a world where we say bind them, guard them, imprison them, medicate them, just get them away from us. Society can offer a limited amount of restraint and protection. But they can't solve the problem of sin. And they can't solve the problem of Satan. You see, the problem of Satan and the problem of sin can only be solved by Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And so what are the traits of a genuine demon-possessed people? We're going to look at that very briefly because it becomes very, very important in our discussion about who are they. How do we tell the difference between someone who's emotionally distraught, mentally unstable, developmentally delayed, or deeply, demonically possessed. That's what Mark and Matthew's gospel, they'll give us clues if we want to look. And by the way, before I became a Christian, very young in my life, I was fascinated by the occult. I was fascinated by the supernatural. I spent much of my life delving into wickedness. When I got saved, I wish I could tell you that all of that demonic reality went away in my life, but it didn't. There were, there were issues that I had to struggle through and, and deal with. And by the way, over a 40-year period on all over the world, as I've dealt with literally thousands of people, I am sure that some of these people have been demonically possessed, but there's only been three that come to my mind where I can say with certainty, that was an incident of demonic possession. That was an incident of demonic possession. That was an incident of demonic possession that falls into the category that we're about to talk about. Because when you come across a truly demonically possessed person, it is frightening. It it's, can be devastating mentally and emotionally. It's terrifying. So what are the traits? Well, number one, the actual occupation by an alien spirit or being. That's what we see in this gospel. These two men are actually possessed by interdimensional beings, alien spirit beings, foreign beings. The second is a fixation and a preoccupation with death and the dead. Why do I say that? Not simply because in our text that these two demonically possessed persons were making their way and traveling about and in the tombs. There's a reason why they're in the tombs. 
There's a reason why. And it's because demonically possessed people have an unhealthy preoccupation with the dead and with death. The demonically possessed will think about death all the time. There'll be images of death all around them. There'll be a fascination with death. When I was a pastor in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I was trying to help this one particular woman who was a park ranger, a forest ranger, and she had some real difficulties. And one of the difficulties that she had is she would go from place to place. As you can imagine, New Mexico is a very large place and there are lots of Native American graveyards and there's lots of places where people are dead. And this particular woman would sleep in graveyards. She found comfort, support, and encouragement sleeping next to tombs, next to dead bodies and dead bones. If she found a dead person in the wilderness, she would lie down next to them. And so I'm trying to help this woman. We're coming out of a counseling meeting, and a person just stops and looks at her and says, you sleep with the dead. Yeah, kind of creepy, huh? kind of weird but that's what happens when you're dealing with people who traffic in spirit beings the third is supernatural strength why do we say that again because of Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel these people would be bound they would be incarcerated they would be enchained and i'm not talking about people who are taking methamphetamines or or who are amped up on drugs i'm talking about a supernatural strength that is animated by the presence of a demonic being my friend Raul Reese had a situation with a demonically possessed person, and Raul is fairly fit and has a black belt in martial arts and can take care of himself. When he was dealing with this other demonic possessed situation, there were five or six people, and the girl was 115 pounds, and she threw them around like they were rag dolls. There's a real spirit being. There's a fixation with death. There's supernatural strength. And those who are really demonically possessed are given to fits of uncontrollable rage. One of the things that I want you to think about as you're going down the list is that some people could have one of these characteristics and you might think that they're demonically possessed, but it wouldn't be true. All of the traits I'm going to suggest to you have to be present in order to have a degree of certainty. People who are possessed resist or oppose Jesus and the gospel. You'll note that in the text, these demonically men, when they recognize Jesus, they are both compelled by him and they are repelled by him at the same time. Time. I'm going to suggest to you that people who are mentally and emotionally distressed, people who, who are experienced mental and emotion oppression or, or depression or, or issues like that, that often when you pray with them, when you read the Psalms, when you gently have Christian music or that kinds of stuff, that, 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 that the presence of Jesus and the presence of prayer bring about a sense of calm and safety. But the, to the person who's possessed, there's a profound sense of agitation and difficulty. The sixth is what I call hyperesthesia. 
The reason why I use that term, and it may be a term that's unfamiliar to you, it means excessive sensibility, but it means more than that. Hyperesthesia means having access to information that you shouldn't have. It's the kind of information that's only supernaturally accessed. It's the kind of thing that only demons know about. I'll give you an example of one of the circumstances that I'm fairly certain was a real demonic possession. When I was very, very young, I was going to a hospital in Southern California to pray with a woman who was dying of cancer. And in order to get to the cancer ward, I have to pass through this other ward and I'm walking down the aisle and I'm hearing blood curdling screams. The kind of screams that make your hair stand on end when you're watching movies. This person is screaming at the top of her lungs and she's saying in Spanish, Tengo sed. That means I'm thirsty. And then in Spanish she kept screaming it and screaming it. And then in Spanish she started screaming, I'm burning. I'm burning. And I keep walking. And I'm walking, and as I'm walking, I hear the voice scream, Gino, Gino! And it just screams repeatedly, repeatedly, and I'm walking past, and I walk towards the room, and there's a psychiatric technician. She's sitting on a chair, and there's a Cuban-Haitian immigrant. Her hair looks wild. She has no front teeth. She's strapped to a gurney. There's leather restraints on her, and she's kicking and screaming and spitting, and she's going, gee, And the psychiatric technician looks up and says, can I help you? I said, I'm not sure. <laughs> and she said, and who are you? And I said, I'm Gino. And she looks at the patient. She looks at me and she goes, are you a doctor? And I go, well, not really. She goes, how do you know this patient? And I go, I've never seen her before in my life. And her eyes got really big. And this woman started screaming and spitting and trying to get free of her restraints. I wish I could tell you that the story ends wonderfully where I go, where I said, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. <laughs> Didn't happen. I was terrified. And I walked away. Now, I got to tell you something. For some of you, you might come into a circumstance where the most crazy, the most weird, and the most bizarre thing that you could ever imagine happens. I wish I could say that at that point I could say that, that God sent me there to deliver this poor woman who was in absolute torment, who was terrified, who was, her life was clearly torn to pieces by the presence of a demon, but I was terrified. You see, my point becomes there's something really happening. That's what hyperesthesia is. It's where a person has access to information that they can't know about. 
This isn't some magic trick. This isn't some sort of manipulation. This is a, a real demon that's really present. And the seventh thing is personality disintegration. The splitting and then the manifestation of foreign personalities. The alteration of voice and speech by demons. We see the speech in verse 29. In Mark's gospel chapter 5, Jesus asks the name and they say, legion. In a real demonic possession, there is the disintegration of the personality. There's the splitting and the manifestation. There's alteration. And not, finally, in number eight, there's occult transference. And I call it occult transference, not in the creepy way where we're talking about the occult. What I'm talking about is invisible and supernatural. I'm using occult in, the, in, in, in its most basic and fundamental meaning. Occult means hidden. And in its fundamental meaning, hidden transference, it means that just like the person is really possessed by a demon, the demon really leaves. And of course, we have the evidence in the text itself. Now, again, even as we talk about these things, does that mean that, um, that all manifestations of demons are so gross and compelling. I'm going to suggest to you what Paul suggests to you in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then that if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness... Is it possible that a person could be demonically possessed... And you can't tell. Because for all intents and purposes, they look just like everybody else. I'm here to tell you that there are times when they don't look like everybody else. But I'm here also to tell you that it wouldn't surprise me that if 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15 mean what I think it probably means, that it's possible to experience the presence of a demon and you be completely unaware of that reality. There's a hint that's given to us in the book of Acts where Paul and his companion are being followed by a woman who keeps screaming out, these are the men of God. And it takes two days for Paul to finally turn around to her and rebuke the demon, a demon of divination that's inside of her. Can demon-possessed people look normal and act normal? I'm going to suggest to you maybe for a while... Maybe for a while, but not forever. In verse 29, it says, and suddenly they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, the son of God? It's interesting to me if they're speaking in Aramaic or if they're speaking in Hebrew or if they're speaking in whatever the native language is on that side of the Galilee. If they're speaking in Hebrew, they're going to call Jesus Yahshua ben Elohim. The men are possessed by demons. They have supernatural ability. They see something other than just simply a person approaching them. They have access to information about him that no one else seems to have at this particular point in his ministry and look what the demons say have you come here to torment us before the time 
So clearly they're possessed. Clearly they're drawn to Jesus. Clearly they're repelled by Jesus at the same time. They're filled with fear because the presence of Jesus fills them with the dread that the ultimate consequence is about to befall them. And by the way, again, look carefully at verse 29. Look at that word torment. I'm imagining that if I were there and the demons say, what have we to do with you, Jesus, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? I'm going to respond with, look at what you're doing to these men. You're tormenting them and you're concerned about me tormenting you. But I'm going to help you with that word torment. It's the Greek word bazanzo. It comes from a noun form, basanos. It was first used in the ancient world to describe a touchstone. You may not know what a touchstone is, but it's something that determines the value of precious metal. In the ancient world, there would be silver and there would be gold. There would be precious metals and there would be a certain dark stone that if you rub the gold on the stone or you rub the silver on the stone, you could determine the preciousness. But again, the act of rubbing on the stone came to mean examination. It came to mean testing. And then it came to mean examination by torture. And then it finally came to mean torment or torture. The demons might be experiencing fear that Jesus is going to immediately send them to Gehenna. Remember, remember what spirit beings are angelic beings, demonic beings, all of the supernatural creatures that inhabit the invisible world that are created by God, they are immortal creatures. They are eternal creatures. You can't kill an angel. You can't kill a demon. All you can do is restrain them. This is why Michael in the book of Jude, when he has a confrontation with Satan himself, he doesn't confront him personally. He says, but rather the Lord rebuke you. You see, there's a reason why there's a hell. The Bible says it was created for the devil and his angels. The Bible says it was created for the devil and his angels because you don't destroy an immortal being you have to restrict its access and you have to restrain its behavior. Now what's interesting about this, it would appear that demons know that they're doomed. They know that there's going to be a time of judgment, a time of damnation. In James chapter 2 verse 19 it says that demons believe in God and tremble. Now, what's interesting in, about verse 29 is that these demons have a more sophisticated theology than some of our liberal friends. Oh, demons, I don't believe in demons. Hell? <laughs> that's crazy talk. Demons, hell, that's all nonsense and crazy talk. But according to the Bible, there are real demons, there's a real judgment. There's a real hell. 
And in verse 30, look what it says. Now, a good way off from there, there was a herd of many swine feeding. If we take Mark at his word, there were a couple of thousand. Because later we're going to discover that, again, remember they refer to themselves as legion in Mark's gospel. And they go into the herd of swine, killing all of them. In verse 31 it says, so the demons begged him. Saying, if you cast us out, permit us to go into the herd of swine. And I know what some of you are thinking. Why did he do that? Why in the world would you answer a prayer like that? Why would you kill this innocent herd of swine? We're going to get to that. Let's look at verse 32. And he said to them, go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. This is the first mention of deviled ham in the Bible. <laughs> it set itself up. I... I'm going to try and keep these to a minimum. <laughs> like I said, when we read Mark's account, it would appear that there are several thousand of the swine. The point that becomes important for each and every one of us is the power of Jesus, the invincible power of Jesus. Look what it says. In a single word, both of the men are released. The swine are occupied and they plunge over the cliff. The reason why this is important because Jesus doesn't stop and he doesn't say, look, just bring me some water from the Galilee so I can turn it into holy water. Give me a robe and, and let's do an incantation and, and and let's see if we can do a little exorcism here. That's not what happens in the text. Jesus' power is supreme. It is overwhelming. It is invincible. Jesus has complete power. He has complete power over sin. He has complete power over the supernatural. He has complete power over demons. It's okay for you to ask the question, well, why did Jesus permit the demons to enter the herd of swine? And I'm going to give you several possible reasons. Not really the most obvious one. The first and most obvious reason is to provide a tangible, physical, undeniable proof that this isn't mental illness. This isn't emotional distress. This isn't some sort of ancient version of mental and emotional illness because can you imagine when when you're in a mental asylum or if you're experiencing mental and emotional distress when the distress goes away do all of the animals around you kill themselves in other words i'm going to suggest to you that in fact Part of the reason is for what I just talked to you earlier about, occult transference. How do you know this is real? How do you know that these were real spirits? These are evil spirits. They are demons. And no doubt, these people were genuinely possessed. No doubt, they were genuinely delivered. Only a dramatic act could provide overwhelming 
and convincing evidence. And I think that lest we forget in our age of skepticism, if we think these people are stupid, these people are superstitious, these people believe all kinds of stupid, weird, and superstitious things, guess what? Skepticism did not originate in our generation. In the ancient world, they had Sadducees. Remember, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They, they would have thought that this is some sort of stage trick because this doesn't happen. But guess what? It did happen. Their worldview didn't accommodate this incident. How do you explain what's just happened unless there's an invisible world occupied by invisible creatures? Sadducees didn't believe in angels and demons. Maybe there's a lesson about holiness and obedience. Most of you realize that Jews were forbidden to eat swine. Remember, they couldn't have a pig farm. Leviticus 11, 7. Isaiah 65, verses 3 and 4. Isaiah 66, 17. Swine, pig flesh, forbidden. Were the owners Jewish? Well, if they were, they were breaking the Jewish law. And if that's the case, then the presence of Jesus demanded holiness and obedience to the law. Jesus shows up, and for those Jews who aren't exactly keeping kosher, this is going to be a bit of a shock. But it could very well be that they weren't Jews. They may have been Gentiles. Was the cleansing and the exit of the demons into the swine intended to teach us something different? Maybe even what it means to be a human being and the value of a human being. Weren't these two men more valuable than every pig on the planet Earth? Not according to some people. Not according to some people who place animals on the same worth scale as human beings. And if that's a part of your worldview, that humans are just another kind of animal, then this present text should alarm you. You should say, oh, why was Jesus so unkind to the pigs? Let me be clear. The Bible's testimony about human beings is that you're made in the image and the likeness of God. The Bible says in the beginning of the book of Genesis that in the garden he created the male and female. He created human beings in the image and the likeness of God. You are an image bearer. There's something about being a human that's different from being an animal. And lest you think that just because you're different from the animals that the Bible gives us permission to be unkind to animals or abuse animals or not take good care of animals, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible, more than any other ancient document, affirms the reality of what it means to, to, to exercise care and concern towards animals. As a matter of fact, in the Ten Commandments, when a human being is ordered to rest, the edict extends to the, to the oxen and the donkey. They too are supposed to cease their labor. But forget about that for a moment. Just for a moment, why did the people have pigs? If they're not Jews, to eat them, 
They're a food source. They're a revenue source. Is it possible that Jesus in part performs this miracle and allows this event to take place to serve as an opportunity to preach the gospel and reach the lost? Wouldn't the news that these two poor men who are healed, who are delivered, their mind and their soul and their body are restored to them, wouldn't this just be an amazing opportunity to stir up people's hearts and to stir people to turn from their sin and turn to the Lord? And wouldn't the people greet the news that the enslaved, demon-possessed people are healed and delivered? Wouldn't this act convince the people who are gripped by greed and materialism that the salvation of human beings is more important than whatever revenue might be generated by the pig industry? By the way, when Jesus shows up, and cleanses a heart, and heals a heart, and delivers people. When Jesus shows up, is it a threat sometimes to the alcohol and drug industry? Might the marijuana industry be a little bit concerned about a revival and the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit? How do we awaken people who are slaves to greed, Slaves to pleasure, slaves to materialism. How can we help them? How can we help them understand that unless they turn to Jesus for healing and deliverance, things aren't going to work out well? And let's just go one step further. What if someone in complete denial suggests that possession by aliens is really a good thing, a happy thing, a healthy thing? And I want you to think about that for a moment because there are literally tens of thousands of people all around the globe who woke up this morning and they invited alien spirits to occupy their mind and their heart and to give them communications about reality and about the future. They have no no idea that they're asking demons to possess them. What if people say, well, what if these two guys in the tombs were really possessed by friendly spirits? See, you're laughing at the absurdity of such a, a notion, aren't you? Do these two guys seem happy to you? Living in the tombs? Terrorizing people? Just like the people you know, the mean people, the problematic people, the difficult people, the people whose lives are, they are enslaved by drugs, they're enslaved by alcohol, they're enslaved by sexual addictions, they're enslaved by all kinds of different things, and in their life do they seem happy to you? And this is one of the reasons why. Jesus had to allow this to happen because evil spirits will act out of their malignant, vicious, evil nature. They come to steal and kill and destroy. And that's exactly what these tormentors did. They go into the pigs and they go over the cliff. 
And look at what happens. Look at verse 33. The Gergesenes paranoia over Jesus. It says in verse 33, then those who fled, who kept them fled. They went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed man. Well, what did happen? Well, we're all familiar with the term shepherds. We know that shepherds keep sheep. In Bethlehem, we see sights of shepherds. We may know less about pig farmers. They used to be called swine herd. Most people know that Jews have no business keeping pigs. Again, are these disobedient Jews? Are they greedy Gentiles? The answer probably is less important because whoever they are, whatever they are, whatever they're doing... They're more interested in their income than they are in freedom. Note, they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. In Mark's gospel, we have a clue of what happened to those demon-possessed men. In chapter 5, verse 15, it says, They found the man sitting and clothed and in his right mind. Do you know why he was sitting? Because he was calm. Do you know why he was clothed? Because he was previously naked. Demon-possessed people have no boundaries. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? This man is calm. He's free. He's healed. He's delivered. He's in his right mind. And in verse 34, it says, And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Think about what you just read again. The whole town comes out to meet Jesus. How did the neighbors react to the news that these human beings were healed and restored? Did they rejoice because their broken lives, their wounded lives, their hounded lives, their tormented lives were given freedom, grace, mercy? Hardly. They asked Jesus to leave. Why did they beg Jesus to leave? You know the answer. You already know the answer. Jesus is bad for business, huh? Jesus is bad for business. They saw Jesus as the reason for the economic downturn. Hey, look, you Christians, look, we, we understand that you are in the economy and we know that you give and we know that you buy homes and we know that you do all of these things but you can't bring your Christianity into commerce. It's okay. You know, just quiet it down with the Jesus stuff. Jesus is bad for business. The covetous aren't fond of Jesus. They have nothing in common with 
with Christ. Remember what the covetous are. These are the people who want more and more and more and more. But whatever it is that they want, it's not holiness. It's not righteousness. It's not Jesus. They don't want Jesus because Jesus is bad for business. They're not fond of Jesus. They don't have anything in common with Jesus. They're not interested in holiness and righteousness and self-denial. Think about what you've read. The demons pray to Jesus To go into a herd of swine, he answers their prayer. The people in the region pray to Jesus, would you please just leave us alone? And he answers their prayer. Because he's kind. And he's a gentleman. And he won't go where he's not wanted. And so when Jesus shows up, and people say, I don't want him. I don't want you. I don't want you in my life because you're bad for business. You're bad for my relationships. You're bad. You aren't going to make matters easy for me. You're going to make matters worse. And what's interesting, in Mark's gospel, we find out that the man who's healed and delivered, he begs Jesus, he prays to Jesus, Please, please, Jesus, I'm begging you. Please let me come with you. Please let me walk with you. Please let me be your disciple. And strangely enough, Jesus doesn't answer his prayer. He says, I I need you to go home. I need you to go home and I need you to tell your family what God has done for you. He doesn't deny Jesus. He doesn't deny him his love and he doesn't deny him a future and he doesn't even deny him discipleship. He just basically says, there's a few things that I'm gonna need you to do before a new chapter enters your life. The covetous are asked to forsake their sin and repent. But the covetous reject Christ and they will expel Christ from their lives. The demons will be expelled from the demon possessed. But the people who are possessed by materialism, the people who are possessed by greed, the people who want more and more and more, remain in their lost condition. By the way, demons are tasked with the job to oppose God's plan for your life, Ephesians 6.12. They execute Satan's plan, 1 Timothy 4.1. They disseminate false doctrine, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. Some cause insanity. Look at Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Look at Mark 5.15, Luke 8.27. Sometimes demons can cause a loss of speech, various diseases, deafness, epilepsy, blindness, suicidal ideation, personal injury. In the book of Revelation, we see demons in chapter 9, verse 3, inflicting grievous torture on the unsaved during the tribulation. Demons have hurt people in the past. And they hurt people in the present. And they will hurt people in the future. The Gergesenes, they valued pigs more than people. And for some people, pigs will always be more important than people. They'll choose swine over the precious souls of human beings. And I think it's true in our life, isn't it? 
The moment that you turn to Christ, the moment that you receive Jesus, the moment that you invite him into your life, you're going to have family and you're going to have friends and you're going to have the people who used to be a part of your life. They don't want to be a part of your life anymore. You used to be so much fun when you would do drugs with me. How can I be your meth dealer anymore? Every time I come over to try and sell you meth, you tell me about Jesus. Every time I come over to have a good time, you don't want to have a good time. You and your family, your friends, they're thrilled that the demons are gone, right? Oh, maybe not. There's a little poem. Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we swine. Oh, get thee hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine. His soul, what care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole since we have lost our swine? How truly modern. What do we value most? What do we care about most? Jesus loves people. He cares about people and he wants to deliver people. And Jesus shows up. And everything's different. But what about the person who says, you know, it's great that you've showed up, but Jesus isn't for me. This isn't who I want and this isn't what I want. What will happen? What will happen to the person who says, no thank you? Well, you know what? Jesus won't force himself on you and he won't force the Holy Spirit on you and he won't force you to love him. In his kindness, he may seek you out again. But I don't know. There's, a, again, a bit of prose. It goes like this. Harden not your heart. Listen. There is a time I know not when, a place I know not where, which marks the destiny of men to heaven or despair. There is a line by us not seen which crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. To cross that limit is to die, to die as if by stealth. It may not pale the beaming eye, nor quench the glowing health. The conscience may be still at ease. The spirit's light and gay, that which is pleasing still may please, and care be thrust away. But on that forehead God hath set indelibly a mark by man unseen. For man as yet is blind and in the dark, and still the doomed man's path below may bloom like Eden bloomed. He did not, does not, will not know, nor feel that he is doomed. He feels, he sees, and that is all well. His every fear is calmed. He lives, he dies, he wakes in hell. Not only doomed, but damned. Oh, where is that mysterious born by which every path is crossed, beyond which God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost? How long may men go on and sin? 
How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and where begin the confines of despair? One answer from those skies is sent. Ye who from God depart while it is called today repent and harden not your heart. I don't feel like I need him today. He may not show up tomorrow. That wooing, comforting, gentle invitation. Because you care about something else. Jesus cares about you. And that's why he's willing to go to people who are mean, violent, unapproachable, inaccessible. Jesus will go where no one else will go to do what no one else will do. Like I said, I wish I could tell you that in the end, that lady experienced freedom and deliverance. But I was in bondage to my own fear and terror. I wish I could have had the courage to just simply say, come out of her. Come out. Go and never come back. You may be given that opportunity in the not too distant future. Someone's going to come to you and they're going to ask you the most important question that's ever been asked. Do you think God could save somebody like me? Rescue somebody like me? Change somebody like me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your love and thank you for your freedom and thank you for hope. Lord, I know that so many people want to know the question, well, what does all of this mean and where did they go and can Christians be demon-possessed? Lord, we know that the short answer is no, Christians cannot be demon-possessed. Lord, we know that the short answer is that the Holy Spirit isn't interested in subletting the apartment. But Lord, I pray that we could focus on what the text is focusing on. What do I believe about people and their worth? and their value. Do I care? Am I willing to follow Jesus into harm's way? Lord, give us wisdom and discernment, but courage that when we face the test, we'll pass the test to extend love to people who need it the most. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.